goes back to... Well, there's a couple of things. One of them is ergonomics. And I'm looking over at you and you're in the trackpad, so that's probably fine. I didn't realize for the last two, maybe three years, I've been ruining my ergonomics, and it came to a head when my hand started cramping extremely bad. And I finally figured it out. Okay. Um, I did buy a new mouse, by the way, but it's the same form factor. But my problem was, is that I was using a Palm-style mouse. It's the uh, Logitech MX3, version 3 or whatever it is now. That's where you cup your hand over it? That's where you cup your hand over it. Now, the the two ergonomically wasn't the greatest. There's some back and forward buttons that cause your thumb to kind of pull back. Um, And there was just some other quirks about the way the, the clicking mechanism for the scroll worked. In fact, I turned off the clicking mechanism because of your complaints because I, I have this habit of just flicking my scroll mouse yes it's like a and nervous you can hear habit. it on calls yeah <laughs> so i turned it off and i had to go straight with the free wheel um but the latest version the three the three uses uh, a magnet mechanism so you still get the ratcheting kind of clicking without the noise so i was able to get that back um but anyways back to the pop in the stack i was using a palm rest with that mouse which oh, meant that my my hand and i'm demonstrating for jeremy but you guys can't see this my palm was elevated above my fingers that's what a probably a good inch of that size of that rest it's like a big pad right and that forced my hand to do a lot of this motion which means i was stressing the top part of my my hand and my thumb was also extremely sore because of push pulling back for the uh back buttons so the new mouse the back buttons the those buttons are now forward and they're they're much more ergonomically correct but i removed the mouse pad completely and I've been like that for about a week now, and my pain has gotten to the point where it's almost gone. Hmm. Uh, obviously, it's going to take time for it to heal and, and not be irritated. But that was a big issue. I spent I very particular about my ergonomics. I have a very nice, expensive chair for my ergonomics. I I have an arm for my monitor so I can raise and lower and position it exactly where I need it to be. Um, I have mechanical keys and everything else I can do to kind of make sure that I'm not going to hurt because I'm sitting on a on in front of the screen for however long. I mean, yep. eight plus hours. Mm-hmm. And I always thought I was doing the right thing until that issue. And I realized that palm was raising my, my palm being raised like that was really bad. Did, did it take a doctor to tell you this? It was just, I, I was at the point where I was ready to go to a doctor and I was, I was going to resign myself to be one of those people with carpal tunnel that has to wear that wrist thing, yep. which I think it's just, I just, I just picture like old gamer guys in the basement wearing those things. Yeah, yeah. Or like just, so that was my picture in my head. I was like, I don't want to be one of those guys. <laughs> but, um, well, this is very topical for me because I have, um, it's been happening for at least months, if not into the years at this point. Mm-hmm. It started kind of in my thumb. Yeah. And kind of up into like this, whatever this part of your hand is and into my wrist. Yeah. And it, it's actually gotten, so the pain's gotten worse. And now it's, and it's every day and it's constant. It's not just when I'm at my computer. It's just, it's in the middle of the night. It's always, mm-hmm. I have this pain and it's really worked its way. I mean, I feel like I can feel it going up in my shoulder now, but it's also not only is it pain now, but I get a lot of um, just numbiness and tingliness. And it's kind of weird. How can you be in pain and be numb at the same time? But it, it kind of, yeah, it kind of is. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I was thinking, man, I hope I don't have like some massive like clog in my artery over here and that, and I'm just like. Oh, because you're pointing at your left hand. Yeah. Yeah. I'm left-handed. That's, okay. So, um, but it's probably, it's probably some kind of repetitive stress, mm-hmm. injury, or carpal tunnel. I don't know. I need to go to the doctor because it's, I've been dealing with it for way too long. 
I'm a little skeptical about going to a doctor because I feel like they just kind of hear and give you what you what you want these days. You have to have a good doctor. Yeah, it's hard. And I guess for me, it's that way because I don't really have a family practitioner that I've been going to for years and trust. It's just I just don't have that kind of relationship. So for me, I'm just extremely skeptical about whether or not they're just trying to appease me. Yeah. Um, Not that they're trying to harm me, just that they're like, this is whatever. If you're painful, then do this. If then now get out of here. Yep. No, I I like my doctor. But is there something is like called like a? Are there like um, what would it be called like agronomists or or like kinesiologists? Who does like who? What's the expert? And hopefully it's an MD of some sort or a DO or whatever that um that handles that kind of thing, like. Oh, this is the way you've been sitting, or this is the way that it's the way that you've been holding your mouse on your mouse pad, or what the, you know. Yeah, I don't know. Who's that doctor? Do I don't. I don't know. Would it be ergonomist? Ergonomist? Like for ergonom? Erg- <laughs> is that a thing? Well, what do you call this? Er- ergonomy, right? Ergon- ergonomics. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Would it be ergonomo? Ergonomo? Ergonom- ergonomology? Ergonomology. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Wow! Uh. I hope everyone listening tried to say it because it's not as easy as, <laughs> no, it's as not. you would think it would be to say. Ergonomic. Er, it's ergonomic. ergonomics. I mean, I don't know, but anyway. Ergon- ergonomist. Is there an ergonomist? Maybe it would be ergonomist. <laughs> that sounds. <laughs> anyway. I learned yep. what a horolo- horologist is the other day. What are they? Mouth? No, clockmakers. What are they called? Hor- or the study of clockmaking, but horologists. Hor? Yeah, H O R O L H O R O L I G I S T. I've been watching this show, and I know this is a tangent, but I've been watching this this uh, this, this show that my father this whole got show has been into. a tangent so far. Uh, yeah, who cares? It's 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 our time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so my dad came to visit, and he he got me hooked on this show that I tried to watch before, but I felt it was too produced. It's called like the Repair Shop. It's a British show, and they do all these kind of restoration things. And uh, yeah, so it just someone had called said. I guess the announcer or something said horologist. I'm like, I wasn't, I was kind of half listening cause I was working and it caught me off guard. So that's how I learned that new word. But speaking of that tangent, um, in that show, and maybe, maybe you can relate to this. It's the way they greet people. Cause they're British. They, they, ask, they go, are you all right? And, and every time hmm. I hear that, I get anxiety because here in the U S when someone asks, are you all right? It's because they see something they're concerned about. Yeah. And in this show, they say it nonstop. Mm. Every time they meet someone, introduce someone, they say it. And I'm, like, we would equivalently say, how are you? Yeah. But the way they say it, I'm, I'm like, something wrong. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Especially because there's a lot of older people because they're bringing in their antiques. And so, <laughs> so when he walks up to him, he goes, are you all right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. oh, something happened? She yeah. okay? <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. Anyways, pop this deck. Yeah. Oh, uh, so back to my other dev okay. story. So this this gets into Salesforce development, uh, and we I've mentioned it before. Kind of my my love hate relationship with LWC and client side programming, and mostly on the hate side. Um, I was gonna say I haven't heard haven't heard a lot of love. So this, <laughs> I mean, there's some good things about okay. it. I mean, the, the framework and 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 data binding and and it handling all the kind of re rendering and the shadow DOM manipulation, all that kind of stuff is is nice. Although. The nice thing about LWC is as it advances, it's becoming more and more closer to the standard. So they're having to do less and less proxies and and 
shims or shivs, as I like to call them, um, to kind of secure the system. It's becoming more and more part of the standard. And as those standards come out, they start incorporating those. So so it's kind of nice in that respect. So a lot of the stuff that I'm doing with the LWC is standard web stuff, you know, accessing the shadow DOM and and how to manipulate it and all that kind of stuff. But I still hate the fact that And it's not a Salesforce thing and it's not a web thing. It's a developer thing. It's a solution architecting thing. It's, I fell into the trap knowing that I hate doing this of putting too much logic in my, my client side components. Yeah. Is it, is it business logic or is it like display layout logic though? It's a fine line. I mean, we learned this with MVC as well. It's a fine line to, to know when to draw the line to say, this is model only, this is view only, and this is controller only. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's such a fine line. And you always find that kind of Venn diagram where it kind of fits in all of it. And you, you end up just trying to make the best decision you can. Um, in this case, this is for a package that we've been developing. I had a V1 build that was had to get put out and there's a lot to it. What kind of package technology is this on John? The Salesforce stuff. I mean, like which generation locked oh, managed second generation. Okay, is everything second now? I, I I'm sticking with second generation, um, but it's it's got its issues. It's starting to get better. I um, still I still need. Is there a matrix chart? I need a matrix chart of like all the different packaging options and like what there, there is. There yeah. is. Yeah, I, just, I have to reference ever, it every so often. Yeah, okay, I can't ever remember. Like, I can't. No there's can. Well, it's funny because like we'll talk about it, and or I'll go look something up, and, and I'm like, okay, wait a minute. At this moment in time, I feel like I understand the difference in all these things and the trade offs. And then next day, it's gone. Like, yeah. I just I don't, I don't have it anymore. I just I don't work in it enough. I'm sure people who yeah you know do tons of package stuff and they've been, done it for the past you know ten years. Like they they know all the stuff about the legacy packages and they went through all the painful transition to the new packages. So they probably know all of it. Just you know second yeah. nature but i i always have to go and you know remind myself oh i do too and it's good to do that because inevitably I, as much as i think i'm up to date on things i'm not always up to date on things or things came out and i knew about it as a beta or a pilot and it either got dropped or or it finally got ga'd and i just forgot about it well that's what's that's 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 a whole other thing that sucks too it's like you can't remember whether certain features you know, got killed or whether they made it into the product or not. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, once you, once you work with it or you know about it, it's like, Oh, okay. And it, and it, it makes it into your mental model of, of this thing now. Yeah. And then it's just hard to remember sometimes like those, the, which things made it, and which things didn't make it. Yeah. And then it's also just the kind of the, the, the details of how you can use something in what context. So I'll give you an example. You can use the metadata API, the Apex metadata API, which is just a wrapper on top of the the metadata API. So wait, which which Apex? It's, it's really confusing. I wish okay. they called it something oh. different. But there's there's an Apex class service or service class that allows you to manipulate certain parts or oh, retrieve okay. certain parts of the metadata from Apex. From Apex. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in this case, it's layout, and I'm using it for a client because they have this requirement to print screen with related records, but they want the related records to print on their own page using that layout. So if I have, I'm just going to use these as an example. If I have an account, I want the account details to print and then all the contacts, but I want each contact to have its own page that looks like the contact page layout. So mm-hmm. it has to represent all that. So I pulled in the, I used that for the first time to read the layout and then display that information. 
Um, and this is all printing to PDF and all that kind of stuff. So, so I got that to work, but it was interesting because I, I hadn't noticed this cause I thought, well, maybe I can, this might be good for packaging cause I can see the layouts and I can let admins be admins. Well, it turns out that you can't, you can use it, but there's a disclaimer. There's like some checkbox whenever you try to install a package that's using it that gives permission to non-certified packages to use it. So that becomes a bit of a hurdle. But once you're certified, apparently it it, it doesn't ask the user to enable that permissioning. So it's just little things like that you have to be careful of in what context. Like, it, yes, it's available. And yes, it's available for packaging. But because of security concerns, it's better to be for, to use it for certified and for unpacked, for unmanaged or I'm sorry, uncertified make sure you're aware of these contexts. So. Yeah. Oh, that's the, that's the whole thing. If you're going to actually publish packages and what, well, it's, what, it's, what, what's packageable, what's not. And just, Oh my God, there's the so because, much. And even with our team who gives me the requirements for these packages, I have to, I don't always know what's available. Cause it's, it's, it's a huge graph of information of what's available and what can be packaged and what can't be. Mm-hmm. Um, and in what context. Um, so, it's it's not only tough for me to try to stay up with it, but it's also tough for me to have to go back to the team and say, I can't package that. Um, it's either managed by another package that we have a dependency on, or it's just security-wise or permissioning-wise, it's just not going to happen. Um, so it's just it's just one of those things to that we have to deal with. But anyways, popping the stack again. <laughs> That's going to be the my uh, word of the day. Is uh, we, the stack. we pop lots of stacks around here. Yeah. Um, where was I? Oh, I, I ended up putting, because it was his first release and I had to get it so done, and so much of my UI layout information was kind of in the component itself, um, I ended up putting a lot of logic there. And then I'm working on kind of quasi-V2, because in order to enable the next part of this feat, this system, which is a templating system, which allows you to modify where things show up on the screen... Um, I had to, I had to, of course, do the next step and create all the configuration for how you manage that and then have that read back into the UI. And for some reason, some dumb reason in my head, I built all the, the data structures for the templating system, had that get pushed to the component, but then I had the component do all the manipulation of, of reading and deconstructing each individual object and reconstructing a new layout data structure mm-hmm. so that it can then render that on the screen. And I ended up creating like new components, new utility components that had objects, JavaScript objects that needed to be created because they had certain things within them to manage the UI and and how it looks and feels. And I ended up, I was like, I'm basically coding this entire app in this, these three main components. And it just, it was, it got to the point where I was like, this is insane. This Mm -hmm. is crazy. And only that, um, because you're pushing things to, um, the lightning component from Aura, a lot of those, because it gets proxied and the way Salesforce handles the security of some of that stuff, it ends up as a read-only object. So your object gets proxied and it doesn't let you modify the contents. It's meant to be immutable. Um, so you end up wanting to clone that object so that it's, so that it's something you can actually manipulate. This is a JavaScript? In JavaScript? Yeah. How is it logged? It, it proxies it. It takes your, your response from your controller, mm-hmm. proxies it, wraps it so that it can basically read only that object. Yeah. Um, but then I got into another gotcha and that is because my data structure, the object structure is hierarchical. If I can say that right. Uh, meaning I have object 
and then an object references within each object and sometimes mm-hmm. arrays is the object assign that I was using doesn't doesn't do deep cloning. In fact, there's really hardly anything in JavaScript that can do a proper deep clone. Yeah. And there's a lot of libraries out there that'll do it and stuff, but it's just it's just not something I want to deal with. <laughs> there be dragons. You can fake a deep clone um, <laughs> by stringifying the object yeah. and then having it parse it back out, and that'll kind of essentially deep clone it. Um, but if you want to merge and do assignments, that's just not going to work. So you have to basically deconstruct that object. And what about references too to other objects? With I mean, that's when you well, if you use that 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 JSON solution to kind of clone it, mm-hmm. obviously it, it it stringifies it and then it just reconstructs a new object. So it's not proxied at that point. Yeah. So and and it's not proxied and you get all the information out of it. Um, so there's just a lot of little things like that that I was having to deal with. And because I had built all this class structure and I needed to merge in so many things, because so there's layers to this UI. There's there's the templating layer that has a certain set of UI fields and default values. Then there's user-defined va- defaults that the user can define. And then there's I have to be able to let them modify all that, save it, and then at some point bring it back so they can review it or save it so that I can manipulate it later. So there's like four layers of interaction within the same data model that I have to merge in, in a certain sequence in order for this to work. And I was trying to do it all in JavaScript and I was trying to do deep clones and, and deconstructing and reconstructing. And I was just like, this is crazy. What am I doing? Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things like you're probably where you're in a, you're already in JavaScript world and you, you just kind of just keep building and keep building. And then you're yeah, like, exactly. I just kept like, building. I shouldn't building. have been building this here. Damn it. So then I stopped and I was like, I'm putting this back in Apex. And my life was so much easier because another problem it solved is that because I was doing everything in Lightning, um, I was using native API libraries. So I was using like get object infos and get pick list values and get record um, and all these Oops. things. Sorry. And orchestrating all of those to load the screen because I needed all this information to happen in sequence. All of that was all of that was um, was tough to orchestrate. I ended up in various states. The The UI performance was slow because things were flashing in and out or popping in and out or rendering and re-rendering. I had some of my layout, which was a big mistake. Some of my layout um, constructing. I'm not sure how to how to say it better. There's there's What I call the layout object is actually a construction of all the different data sets that I have to manage. It yeah. puts it into one data structure so that I can tell the screen how to render everything. Mm-hmm. I was using a getter setter for that because I was having issues with the rendering flow you know at what point does my component become active and rendered so that i can start populating the ui uh because i was using all these wire functions so i had all these wire functions that are running in parallel and at different states so i thought that i would just use this getter and anytime any one of those things refreshed it would just rebuild this layer and re-render the ui when i checked my debug logs because i or the console because i outputted the the the, the layout to the console it was running that code like three or four times just mm. on a typical page load. Yeah. Cause it was just constantly popping in and out. And so all that code was getting run again. I was mm. like, oh crap, that's not good. Yeah. So I got rid of all my wire functions and I got it down to one apex method that says get form. Yeah. Okay. And the apex code does all the work of, of pulling all the data in, organizing it the way it needs to be. Um, I have tons of testing, unit testing it took me forever to get that stuff retested and properly organized brought it back and now i have a really nice ui that that i get a nice spinner because it's loading and reading that data it stops and it loads it only once and then everything else is just user interaction 
So it went from mm. this kind of weird thing where things were happening and I couldn't always debug it or maintain it correctly because I wasn't sure what the order of operations was or what was popping in when. I had all this defensive programming going, if this is null, if this is null. Then I added new getters because I was like, well, what if this data is not here? So let me add a getter that that handles, gracefully fails if that data is not loaded yet. Yeah. And it just, it got insane. Mm. And it, you would think someone like me who hates doing that type of JavaScript program wouldn't fall into that trap, but I did. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of one of those things, uh, unless it's something a, pr- a problem that you've solved a similar, really similar one um, before, and even like probably recently. You know, it's like you're you're probably not gonna get it right on your first approach at it. You're gonna have to get into it, build something, learn from it, and then step back and think about what you did and yeah. what needs to change, and then you then you change it. Sometimes you throw the first thing completely away. That's a bit harder with packaging. <laughs> no shit. It's, very, it's impossible. You can't throw stuff away. Uh, I, 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 this is another thing I need to go back and double check because I think it became GA, but I have, I have to get them to approve it, which is to allow me to delete classes and stuff from our package. Um, you have to, uh, <laughs> to create a case for deleting <laughs> yes. classes. I have to. Oh. I, I basically have to get them to enable the feature and, and say yes. I understand the ramifications of what I'm asking for, which is deleting fields and metadata and stuff um, from a, from a package. How does that work if you if you have a published package and let's say you had um here's the thing on like Apex classes mm-hmm. isn't it true that in the installed org they can only create dependencies on global classes they cannot they don't have any they, they can't create dependencies on public or certainly private classes right right but even even all my prior so you I should no be globals. able to delete public I have no globals, but it won't let you delete it. I mean, you can you can delete it, but when you go to create the package um, and you specify the package version, and that package version has a dependency on that, it stops it. Unless you have that feature enabled that lets you delete it, um, it won't do that. And that's, that's that's from first generation had that as well. Well, can, let me ask you this: Let's say you have a public class in your package, mm-hmm. and let's say it's a it's a Visual Force controller class. Mm-hmm. Can in the installer org, could they create a new Visual Force page and and set your public class to be its controller? If it's global. It has to be global. It has to be global. Okay, that, so, yeah. so I don't know why you couldn't delete public classes. I don't I don't either. I I don't I don't I understand fields and global classes. That it might just be a it might just be a all or nothing thing on the Salesforce side. Like it just validates that, that nothing yeah. was deleted. I can understand why they do that for fields. Because you essentially would be deleting user data. Oh, that too. There's the um, actual yeah. You know, they had put data in it. That's right. that, that, that's obviously a big. So problem. I can understand yeah. that, and it must be a package top level thing. Like they can't, they couldn't, or cannot go in and say if it's not global, then go and let them delete this class. It has to be an all or nothing thing. So that might be why they there's that caveat there. So let's say you do delete a field from your package, and because you get the permission to delete the field or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and you package it. And people go to install this, the new version, mm-hmm. they upgrade the package. What, what is that experience like for the, for the admin that's doing this upgrade? Do they get a warning? I don't think they get a warning. Do they have to approve or do the, they have to delete the field? The, the field stays. It's the field stays in their org in the config. I think it only gets removed if the whole package is removed. If the whole package is uninstalled, but if it upgrades and it's a field that you've deleted, I think it just marks it as deprecated, but the field is still there. Oh, okay. What about you? Let's say you delete a class 
from the class should go away as long as it's not global. So let me ask you this. It shouldn't let you delete globals. Globals you have to deprecate. You can't delete globals. Right. You have to deprecate them and you can, you can stub them out if you want, but okay. But then, because I I was curious, like let's, I was thinking, okay, if you could delete a global class and then someone, and then uh, an org goes to upgrade to your, to your new version, what message should they get? Especially if they've got a, if they've created a dependency on that global class in their org, what what's that what's that upgrade experience like? Do they does it just stop and fail with some terrible gag? Probably so, actually. Well, um, it's, it's the onus is on you to to properly handle that. So what you would do in that scenario is you would deprecate. Who's the class, you? The developer. Okay. The package developer. Gotcha. You would deprecate the class. You have a global top level class, and then you also have global methods. Those are what's exposed to the to the user. Global methods and properties. No, I was saying if you could theoretically delete global classes, I would just wonder what that. I guess it's just a hypothetical question. Like, what would what should well, that, that what that, should that experience be like for the for the admin who's doing that upgrade of your package? I think what it should say is, like in the case of deleted classes and things, it, it should say, um, "Hey, you're upgrading this. Um, here are the things that are about to be deleted if you continue." And like, I think you have to like do those. It's one of those things where it gives you a text box. You have to type in, yes, I understand this. And then you, you know, you, you hit go. <laughs> I guess that would be the experience, but the way the experience is today handled is you would either stub out, you, you can't delete them. So you can't remove, delete yeah. that method. You can't delete that class, but what you can do is you can, you can remove the logic and you can just have it throw an error that says, this is deprecated. Please use blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So that if they are, if they do have a dependency on it, they are using it. If they, when that call happens, it should throw an error. Obviously, you'd want to tell all your customers that you deprecated something, but um, ideally, you wouldn't. You wouldn't touch it. You would leave it be and create a new version of it or move on. Just know that that class sits there, legacy. Yep. Those are your options. I wouldn't. I I agree with Salesforce in not allowing it to be deleted and just either let it exist as as a V one and start versioning your your classes or. If you if it's really something that doesn't need to run at all because it's it's some some critical issue or mm-hmm. causes an issue, yeah, then just stub it out and throw an error, and that way when the upgrade happens, if there's any dependencies when they make that call, it'll throw the error. <clears throat> well, since we're since we've been talking about all this packaging stuff, do you want to jump to that conversation that yeah, that's a good segment uh, I was having yesterday in Slack. Um, let me go to that. So this came up yesterday in Slack in the general channel. And the question was, um, I, thought, I thought this would be just to be a good discussion. Okay, so is running checks on your code's CPU usage and SQL queries, etc., a best practice since you can't really catch governor limit errors, especially in packaged code? Uh, we do a ton of protection in our code, but there's always these random things coming up. Um, I completely at first misunderstood this question. I answered a completely different question, but then I realized he was asking something different. Um, so that really made me think about this thing of, you know, would you, cause you can, okay. First of all, let me confirm this in, I guess like we're, I guess we're talking apex here. Mm-hmm. Um, in apex, can you, you can query the current limits and get information about where you are on limits, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. Is that a, is that an apex class or does it, or do you have to actually have to do a query to, it's an apex class, like limit something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I don't, there's not, is there a cost to that call? <laughs> Cause like, are you going to blow your limits by querying your limits? <laughs> no, okay. no, it's, it doesn't count against your limits. Okay. It used to count against your statement limits when, oh, when everything was statement. Yeah, yeah. 
counted by the statement. I couldn't imagine doing what I built these days, having that limit still. Oh, the statement limit. Yeah. Cause you I know so much now to, to reduce the, the size of my methods, to reduce the size of my, my classes, which means I have more, classes a lot of more statements and yeah. a lot more statements. Yeah, yeah. And, and well, I suspect it was back then. It was a, it was a, a proxy for, resource consumption Mm -hmm. is probably the best they could come up with at the time, just engineering wise. And they've just improved it. Like now they can monitor and and govern more important uh, resources versus like statement count. Yeah. So thank you Salesforce for improving that because that actually did makes a lot more sense now. And and it doesn't, you're not encouraged to write crappy code. So yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so if you can get, if you can, you know, at runtime, you can get, limit information do you engineer limits management into your code um do you and and you know there's the there's two different i think ways to think about this one is like forget packages and all this kind of stuff like just in general apex code like should you um you know if you're if you've if you've hit you know if you're at 90 percent of your number of SQL queries and you're not done with stuff. Should you, is there a second best scenario type of thing where you're like, well, we couldn't finish the whole transaction, but we got, we got a, a lot of it done. Um, so we're going to stop here and maybe we, we log some error message or send some information back to the user about, Hey, we, we were able to do this, but we're, we weren't able to do this other part. All right. Okay. That's one thing. But if you're in a package context where you're installed in someone's org, I mean, the thing is like now, of course, you you have you, you all you can see is your own little world. You can't see everything else that's going on. Now you can get you can still get limits information, I presume. Yeah, but just no, you know, kind of a priori knowledge about how you know what your limit situation is going to be is mm-hmm. you don't have you don't have that. Um, you don't know how well behaved the code is that's that's executing in the same context you are. Um. Well, it, let's let's address that topic because that only matters if you're not certified. Yeah. If you have a certified package, yeah. then you have your own set of limits. Uh, yeah, so the limit counter gets reset for mm-hmm. for your code execution. Okay, so you can kind of treat it as if it's running in your own sandbox. Yeah, all your things. Yeah, um, that's not to say there might be some issues with the way certain things run or launch or execute, but for the most part, you have your own limits, so you, that's less of an issue. So the, the main thing we're talking about is unmanaged packages, or I'm sorry, not unmanaged, um, uncertified packages. And I guess more importantly than even that is, you know, if you're just writing code for your own org, you can you can do whatever the business needs you to do in terms of, oh yeah, let's let's if we hit if we're about to hit some limit, let's let's make this trade off and like only do half of the work, and the other half we can just we can save for another day, you know, or whatever, mm-hmm. another transaction. Um. But that's very opinionated and that's very business specific. It's, it's hard to put something like that into code that's going to go out into the world and installed into other orgs. Unless, and this is where, this is kind of where this conversation went. Unless it's one of those things that like you actually give options mm-hmm. in your settings in your, for your package that somehow clearly like delineate and define what the option is for like, cutting some transaction short, you know, in service of getting some of the work done, but maybe some other, other, other critical work, you know, it doesn't get done and, and mm-hmm. the customer can opt into that. But 
So that's something I think you could do. I mean, assuming, again, I'm kind of making assumptions that you can get at the limit information. Um, but, the, you know, the problem with that is the, man, the increased complexity. Right. Because you need to, all that logic, you need to test as well. Mm-hmm. And just setting up those test scenarios might be hard. And in the, just understanding those scenarios. I mean, it's already, when you consider the whole, this trigger development model, which, you know, it's one of my long-time rants. I think it's actually a terrible programming model. Um, you know, it's the whole thing of, like, dropping a ping-pong ball into, like, you know, that one of those vats of just um, a thousand mousetraps that are set with ping-pong balls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a good that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so so that you, you, you cannot wrap your mind around the complexity of what goes on in some of these transactions. And so trying to add, you know, even what, even if it may not seem like super complex mm-hmm. kind of limit bound um, logic, it's probably a lot more complex than you think. And it's probably harder to set up all the test scenarios that you need to really thoroughly test that than you think. And just, is that even, should you even go down that route? Well, I can tell you from experience no, cause yeah. I've done it. Um, it it becomes, and I've learned this the hard way. It's it's a bit of a smell, and it means that you have to you have to understand your requirements first of all. Uh, it all comes down to the requirements and the expected outcome. So one thing I've done in the done in the past when I've been faced with a situation is when I have something that I know is going to eat up a lot of resources. Is one thing you can do is build it out. Don't worry about adding complexity or trying to solve for that mythical. I'm going to hit the limit issue. Make it work. Create a test class that does bulk. So meaning you create the scenario so that it has to interact with hundreds or thousands of records and get an understanding of where your baseline limit is. Your baseline limit could be 100 records before it starts to fail or it could be 50 records. So now you can understand where that limit is. Can I, can I just pause you for one second, though? Sure. So that's for that test scenario. But a lot of times in, in the real world, you there's such a set of triggers that happen and we're going on before it actually invoked this code that your mm-hmm. tests probably aren't doing. Yeah. And that's, that's where, that's where the next part of the solution comes in. Once you understand where the, where that line is, um, you have a couple of options. You can either add in code that says, once I reach this limit or once I'm within this range, you can kind of do your own management of, I can handle this many records within a transaction after that, I need to move into a future call. Or after that, I need to call a batch job. Or you can simplify it completely and say, I'm always going to run this in a batch job because I know I'm always going to have to deal with multiple records, which is the right, in my opinion, the right way to go. And then what you give the user, the client, is a is a uh, configuration mechanism that says what that batch size should be. So you set the default at 50 because you know you can handle 50 at a time within a batch, but maybe the client has all this crazy automation flows and triggers and everything else. Um, and by giving them a, to- a way to specify what that size is, they can bring that back down to 10, 15, or even one. Um, and in which case, then your, your code can scale. Now it, it'll take longer to run and all that kind of stuff. But at least, at least within that context, the user has a way to manage that. Yeah. And that's, that's a scenario where like, it's, it's kind of a, it's just a batch oriented problem to begin with, but a lot of these problems, they're not necessarily batch oriented. So there's, that's, that's not necessarily always a knob that is going to be available to you to turn down or up. It just depends on your on the use case. Yeah. Right. And here's the other kicker, which let me, let me find this comment. 
Um, where was it? Okay. The thing is, I think the idea of, because I, my, the thing I'm always going to try to sell is, hey, if we run into a limit thing, mm-hmm. instead of like checking and trying to, and trying to alter our logic paths, which I think is really dangerous, not saying, I'm not saying it's never the right thing. I'm just saying, I think usually it's the wrong, it's not, the, usually it's not the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, just don't even check limits. If you hit a limit, the whole transaction rolls back, so your data is back to a safe state. It's just nothing was done. Right? right. We weren't able to do this. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's that's the right thing. And then they can go, and then people can go and figure out, okay, what the hell? What, what are we doing that we triggered? We, you know, because limits are a lot more generous nowadays than they used to be. So if, if you're hitting limits nowadays, um, either you are trying to chew through a shit ton of data. Or something's something's going wrong, you know. More than likely, it's someone's flow. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it's it's an easy trap to fall into as an as an admin. You have this automation, and you start adding things, and you build a new flow to add it, and you build a new flow, and you build a new flow, and before long, things are really slow. You know, John, I had gotten all the way into this conversation without even thinking about flows. I'm sorry, but that's that's going to cause most of your that limit is issues. Such a, a buzzkill. Flow yeah. is such a buzzkill. Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, in context of of a package, um, in in many cases, when you have developers and they're writing code and they're writing the tests properly, the tests will run and they'll 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 throw that limit in the test, so it shouldn't ever get to production that way. The problem is, is that we have people manipulating business logic in production by creating new flows, okay. and that's where I see that scenario happening more often. Um, of course, I mean. When you're installing a package, it doesn't it doesn't run. You rerun your tests against that org. You can force it to, but it does, that's not inherently what it is. It's assuming it's a validated build and it's going to work when it gets there. So in that scenario, yeah, you could run into issues by installing it, and all of a sudden things stop working. So yeah, let me backtrack on that a bit. <laughs> well, let me, and I don't think I finished this this guy's thought. Um, he says. The thing is, I think the idea of failing the transactions makes sense when you want them to. But our solution is an add-on, and the customer is, they're fault-tolerant to partial failure, but they're not fault-tolerant to a basic object update ever failing because of an add-on exceeded its resources. So let's say just someone just edits a, an account and changes the name and saves it, and they can't even save the record. So, simple thing. Because I mean, of, I think if the because client of, is that strict about it, then they should have, they should already have procedures and testing involved, unless they're just completely unreasonable. Well, yeah, but the thing is, like, when you're talking about adding all these third party packages into your org, I mean, how do you how do you test that? I mean, I guess one thing you could do is you could write. Uh, this is probably you should do write your own Apex tests that exercise all kinds of use cases that involve all these third party packages because the third party package producers can't do that they don't know what packages you're going to be running in your org no they don't but as the installed org you can create tests apex tests that that do exercise uh all these packages in 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 the in the combined you know total org i'd like to uh quote friend of the show shell black uh salesforce is not an ipad 
Don't just go installing a bunch of apps into your org. <laughs> such a good... Create a sandbox yeah. and test your stuff out before you put it into production. Number one, that's such a good quote. But also, when's the last time the Shell Black got a mention? <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah. But yeah, that that was that was the most perfect uh, quote I could ever come up with on that. Yeah, it's not an yeah, iPad. That's true. But boy, we like to treat it like one, don't we? Yeah. I mean, it takes governments, it governance. It takes understanding that you're going to introduce something new in, into to a system, and it's it's going to consume resources. That's that's a given for any system. Whether you're talking about Salesforce or adding a new server onto your network or whatever, it's going to consume resources, and you have to understand what that impact's going to be. So you test it, you you sandbox it, you kiosk it, whatever you want to call it, or kaizen it. You test it out and see what the impact's going to be, so that you don't do this in production and bring everything down. Um, so, I mean, for clients that are very risk averse like that, they should already be doing this. If you're risk averse and you, you need things to, to succeed because it's a critical part of your business, you should already have these isolated environments set up for you to test these things and do it. And if you're, if your app is, is providing critical functionality, it might be worth investing in getting it certified, whatever the cost is that, so that you have your own limits and you don't have to worry so much about that. Yeah. I mean, most, I mean, any of these commercial um, ISVs, I mean, I'm assuming they're getting their, at least all their main packages certified. Well, there's, there's a cost to it. There's a process to it. And there, yeah. there's just a lot to it. So it takes time. And and during that time, you, you're still selling your product. So it, it's, it's a very common practice with an ISV on a new product that they'll release versions of it that are not certified. And while they're working through the certification process, brings up another question again, it's been so long since I've done, I used to do some ISV work actually, but it's been, Oh, at least 10 years. Mm-hmm. But if you are letting customers install your essentially a private package at that point, right? Mm-hmm. It's um, not because if it's not certified, it can't be on the app exchange. Right. So they're installing a, your private package. Um, and then down the road, you get it certified and put it on the app exchange. Mm-hmm. Does the package ID and everything stay the same? Can the customer mm-hmm. is it? Are they just now? On the, can they stay on the same upgrade path that that customers that installed through the app exchange yeah. are? Okay, yeah, yeah. When you create that package, you get an ID, yep. and that that ID is your okay. Never changes. Never changes. Okay. Your ver- your version yeah ID changes, right. but you have a root. Well, only only ID. only on subsequent versions, right? Your existing version IDs don't change, do they? No, as you create a new version, mm-hmm. as you version your apps and create new releases, each one of those gets a new ID. That's how it knows what to install. Right. But, but you have a base package ID that never changes. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have some news items. Um, do, do you do you follow this ThoughtWorks as technology? By the way, I was in this. Uh, where was I actually? Um, crap. Where were we? I can't remember now. Because I feel like it's Jermaine, but there was some nerd with a ThoughtWorks shirt on. Oh, I know where I was. Um, I took my oldest son and a couple of his friends to this Andretti racing thing mm-hmm. at uh, Grandscape. You, you familiar with that? No. Yeah, it's like a go. It's like a go kart racing thing. Oh, okay, I was gonna say it sounds like a go kart thing. Yeah, and it's also it's like a huge thing. It's got like they have like laser tag and um, zip line and all kinds of crap in there. That's cool. I got to check that place out then. <laughs> Um, but yeah, there was some, some nerd with a ThoughtWorks shirt on. I haven't, I haven't thought about ThoughtWorks in forever. I bought one of their products when I was going to get into, I think mobile dev. I think they had like a, uh, I think they had like a platform independent, um, language or IDE or something. I don't forgot what it was, but I, I 
never got too far with it. They, yeah, they've, they've published several tools. They had one that got some traction. Was it like a, almost, I feel like it was like a Jira competitor type of thing or something. Something like that. Yeah. I could also be confusing them with Pivotal. No, I'm pretty sure it was ThoughtWorks, but yeah, it's, that was a decade ago, if not longer. Yeah, it's been a while since I heard that name. Um, but yeah, they, huh, technology, I didn't download it. You have to fill out a lead gen form. No, you don't. Wow. See, that's the way to do it. That's because they already got your <sighs> IP address. You clicked accept all cookies, so uh, they've I already tracked Actually, you. I guess I did. The good old GDPR cookie book. You know, I don't think GDPR, GDPR did nothing but just train everyone to subconsciously click the cookie it, button. It helped. It helped for a little bit for a short time, kind of like the, the phone registry where the do not call list where you could register your phone on the, on the do not call list. And it helped for a little bit, but uh, then they got creative. This is interesting. Um, techniques. So they, they split it up between they have what it is it techniques, tools, languages, and frameworks. And, uh, Platforms. And they have these different categories. Adopt, trial, assess, and hold. I'm sure they define those somewhere, but I guess hold means like, eh, don't don't use this. Um, assess would be look at it, right? Mm-hmm. Trial would be, okay, use it, but don't necessarily like bet the farm on it. And then adopt is bet the farm on it. Mm-hmm. Am I right about that? Seems logical. I'm just looking for things. There's so many things I'm, I'm like, I don't even know what these are. I, 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 need to, I need to get from under my rock and you know read some blogs or something. Um, sealed secrets. Adopt. Or no, it's trial. What is a sealed secret? Google Cloud Dataflow. That sounds like something up my alley. Um, GitHub Actions are now, you can trial them. You know, oh. GitHub had a big outage the other day. And like, so people were down for like a day or two. Like you just, everyone who had their all their workflow on GitHub. And their bills and everything, you're down. You're yeah. down. I mean, I don't know. Everything goes down every once in a while. That's the thing. And you just have to, that's just business. Yeah. It's going to happen. Not, it just is. <laughs> no, there's been no one immune from it. Azure, AWS, GitHub, Microsoft, Salesforce, doesn't matter. Apple. You're going down. <laughs> you're going down. But um, there is one consistent thing. None of their trust sites all their outages were ever accurate. No, they're never. Date. Trust sites are bullshit. <laughs> Stat or like, status sites. Something's not working right. Let me go check. Oh, it says everything's up and running. What the hell? Uh, John, you're you're free to assess Apache Iceberg. Okay. Yeah. I'll build my Titanic app and start testing at Iceberg. You're allowed to trial Circle CI. I mean, isn't Circle CI like 10 years old? Yeah. What is this? I mean, some of the stuff. Um, techniques. Uh, we're now trialing server-driven UI. Wait, isn't that like classic ASP? <laughs> <laughs> hey, maybe it's that that uh, WebSocket uh, thing I came up, I talked about last time. You're you're allowed to trial. Get this. This is what it's called. Definition of production readiness. It's a it's a technique. It's a technique pr- production readiness. Yeah, you're you're allowed to trial software bill of materials. 
We uh, we really should like pick a couple of these and dig into them and like have a future show on them. Yeah. You're allowed to trial team cognitive load. <laughs> oh, but hold on. Ready? Hold on spa by default. Mm. Yeah, hold on that forever. Hold on production data in test environments. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. I do oh, like that yeah. uh Salesforce has a has their um I think it's part of the shield. Or yeah. The, where it'll it'll ob, I can't say words obfuscate. There you go. There you go. The uh yeah. uh customer data for sandboxes. Yeah, what is it what does it do? Does it I think it just jumbles up the names or something or okay. changes them or something. It mm. does something. But I think it was part of shield. Uh, so languages, we can adopt Swift UI and and test containers. That's oh, I guess it's a more of a framework. Test containers is great. Yeah, I think we're expecting some updates to the Swift language coming up. Uh, I think for well, Swift UI is there. That's a different thing than the Swift language. Um, oh, is okay. it like is it their framework or is it like a kind of a DSL for UI? I, I don't I mean, even Swift, know. To me, is the entire language set, including all the libraries. So I don't. Yeah, now Swift UI is a distinct thing. Is it? Yeah. Okay. I just can't tell you much about it. Um, oh, trial micrometer. I use micrometer a lot. It's a. Um, I don't know what that is. It's a. It's a Java. I think it's just Java. Library that you use to instrument like metrics for your application, mm. and what you do is you you have a dependency on micrometer in your application. Um, now it can, but by default, like pull in all kinds of system metrics and everything. But you can also do like custom metrics. Um, mm-hmm. So you just figure out like what type of metric is it? Is it a gauge metric? Is it a whatever? Is it like a pan, like half a dozen different kind of metrics? And then you can have your application kind of ride into that metric, this micrometer metric. But then micrometer can publish like real time or whatever these metrics to any number of the like monitoring platforms out there, mm-hmm. Elastic or Datadog or like all you know. There's just uh, Prometheus and Grafana and all these things. Um, yeah, and your application doesn't have to know about any of that. In fact, it can that can you know, you're, you don't, you're not, you don't form any dependency on this. So it's almost like the log for J or whatever for monitoring. Okay. Like you can sub in your actual, or no, it's like the SLF for J. It's like a facade or like a, you know, an API layer that prevents you from having to couple to any given implementation of these things. Yeah. Don't use log for J as an example. I know it's not a, yeah, they have a, because of that one thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. Anything else interesting? Wow. I just, some of these I don't know about. Assess the composable architecture. That's either a language or a framework. God, I gotta look at that. WebAssembly, assess. How's WebAssembly doing these days, John? I don't know. I haven't been kept up. I think Rust got an update too recently. Rust got an update? Like yeah. a new, like a new big version. No, nah, it just got minor version, but I just We're, remember seeing it come across. So trial Flutter Unity widget. Oh, what's a Unity? That's um, what is Unity, John? Unity, as in the the game engine? No. Oh, is that what it is? I thought there was something else. Is that the game thing? It is a game engine, huh? Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Is that the one that like everyone builds on? What's the what's the what's the big one that everyone? Uh, there's Unity and Unreal are the two. Unreal, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. Do we just license it and then you can build on it, I guess? 
just pay them some money and you can build your game on it. Yeah. Okay. A lot of them have pretty generous licensing where um, you can learn and train on it or you can build free stuff on it. But once you start selling it or license it or something, certain amount, you have to start paying for it. So anyway, good old thought works. What's this Microsoft Power Platform? I put it in the notes, but I forgot what it is. I have no idea. And so Microsoft's looking to enhance its profile in video games uh, with its pending Activision. Um, Okay. Uh, Microsoft Power Platform could be its next bigger opportunity and potentially bigger than Office, which is saying a lot. Um. What is Power Platform? Are they saying it's a multi-billion dollar growth thing? Okay, it allows developers to have a set of tools to build customized, low-code apps, automated workflows, generate reports, create chatbots, all designed to prove productivity. It can also integrate with GitHub, as well as Teams, Slack. Yeah, Teams and Slack. So it's the next uh, version of Axis? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Low-code. Power Platform. Okay. Not to be confused with Power BI, which sounds like it's completely different. They need to work on their branding. Everyone's having branding problems, I've noticed. There's a a change of branding that I don't even know if I can say, because I don't know if it's public yet. Mm. But we'll talk about it at some point. It's annoying. Um, That reminded me. Salesforce has something. Uh, where was that? Their branding change? No, no, their, no it's, um, change? it's a new de- you know, developer thing. Okay. Salesforce, uh, let's see. Um, blah, blah, blah. Where, I'm looking for this actual story here. One of the main initiatives. Okay, so Salesforce has apparently a 100-person AI team. A crack AI team. They've created... A voice-driven programming approach that they have dubbed CodeGen. The di- idea is to let people simply describe in plain spoken language what they want to do, and the AI will produce the code. And so the first thing as I was reading this, I'm thinking, well... BI tools do that. that. That's what GPT-3 does. Yeah. It's gotten really good at that. And then, of course, later in the article, it says, okay, Salesforce is trying to achieve something with conversational coding that hasn't been done before. While Microsoft is working something similar with the GPT-3 GPT framework, this is what this guy Savarese calls deep learning at scale, and it involves extremely complex models. And I'm sorry, is this not just GPT-3 that's, that Salesforce is kind of customizing probably for like Apex and... Probably. And uh, what's it called? LWC. But it makes a nice headline. To I know. Everything's AI. They had a bunch of other AS stuff in the news, kind of, or service cloud AI, more marketing cloud AI. I mean, I think for simple requirements that can be expressed properly, I think it's not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, well, what's, fact, it's probably going to be more efficient than, than what's what's GitHub's thing that that does this? I don't know. Oh yeah, they is it is, yeah it's GitHub right? A GitHub. What do they call it? Um, it'll a copilot. Remember we talked. Looked at that, right? We talked about that. It writes code for you. And I think it's based on GPT-3. 
That's crazy. I mean, it's I've seen some of the demos. It's I mean, it'll it'll I think it'll solve for the simple stuff. I still think yeah. people and developers are going to be needed for for more complex things and also just understanding the interactions and scope and the nuance of business requirements. When you also have to keep in mind that um, the AI it can it can generate code just based on looking at lots of other code, but it has it actually doesn't understand like language structure, doesn't understand semantics, doesn't even understand syntax. It's just it's like when they teach I don't know certain animal like birds to talk and stuff. Well, I mean, yeah, they can kind of make those sounds. They have no idea what they're doing. They have no idea what those sounds mean. Anything, and and so that's like what the code that AI generates. Um, so. It can, when you consider that it doesn't understand the language and it doesn't understand your business, it doesn't understand anything at all about what it's doing. You certainly cannot trust the code it produces. Um, that's why, even with Copilot, uh, some of the things like demo really well, and and are, you know truly are impressive. Um, mm-hmm. co- companies are taking very, very, very careful approaches to these things. Um, well, I mean, generally, they're not allowed to be used. Um, I mean, I'm sure it'll grow over because time. they also they do, they do things like they'll they'll the AI will put in um, copyrighted code. It doesn't understand this, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, trademark infringing, patent infringing um, code. It doesn't care. So it's in the toddler years yeah, right now. Yeah. So <laughs> it's not not to be trusted. So um, anyway. Salesforce is in an interesting little pickle here with uh, the RNC, which I assume is the Republican National Committee. We talked about that a little bit last time. Um, they had that request for data. I don't. I mean, I guess this is news. It was, yeah, this is um, kind of a couple of weeks ago, but I guess Salesforce got subpoenaed. Yeah. Uh, assuming we're talking about the same thing, it's maybe so. Did we talk about this? It's for campaign or email data related to, I guess, the Trump. Or no, it was something about the whole January sixth yeah, um, yeah. thing. But um, it just you know, it, it just got me thinking about man, Salesforce. You know, being this just big um, database in the cloud that everyone uses. That's if you know, if we get some big stories of Salesforce having to divulge their customer data that that's this is not good this is not good for salesforce not that it's not that it's not salesforce's fault i mean they have to comply with legal orders but you know it can have a little bit of a chilling effect on people thinking twice about putting their data in someone else's database mm-hmm. i'm curious what data though because wouldn't that subpoena go directly to whoever the organization that has that data yeah because it's not like you can't get it out i, I, I would understand if it's data in a system that you can't get out well, I think it's maybe maybe the people that uh, whose organization it is that they don't want to give. I guess they could be subpoenaed too, though. Yeah. Right? I, I, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't understand that. Yeah, I am not a lawyer. Yeah, not my area expertise yeah. either. Um, so Salesforce, I guess, signed this big five year partnership with Formula One. You see this? No. Oh, yeah. So Formula One is pleased to announce that Salesforce, the global leader in customer relationship management, will join as a global partner to power and grow fan engagement for the most prestigious motor racing competition. In addition, Formula One will work with Salesforce to gain actionable insights from Formula One's carbon footprint. Oh, God. (laughs) Helping to accelerate our mission to reach net zero emissions. Can't they do that just by making all the cars electric? 
Well, how are you generating your electricity? That's I don't I don't, don't, know. don't worry about that. Just plant some trees. Plant some trees. Just plant some trees. Don't worry about where the electricity comes from. But anyway, so I get to the bottom. This is a press release. I get to the bottom and I'm looking at the guy, the Salesforce guy, who you know they're quoting here, and his name's Colin Fleming. Never heard of him, but I went and looked him up. Just I'm just curious. And on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. and he's worked at Salesforce for 10, 11 years. But then I go, I'm looking at like his previous jobs. Well, you get back all the way back to his first job, athlete dash racing driver. This is 2003, 2006. He uh, worked uh, for Red Bull. Hmm. He was a racing driver for Red, Red Bull, I guess their, their, maybe their, their car or whatever. And then he was also a founder of his own company, um, North American and European cha- racing champion with 15 years motorsports experience. And I'm like, wait a minute. This guy who's his whole history is like racing and he's a race, you know, not only was he in, like a champion racer, but then he has had his own, his own business for all this racing stuff. Mm-hmm. And who did he just get Salesforce to do a big partnership with? Formula One. It's like this guy's just pushing his own agenda. He's just having fun. <laughs> he says uniting his world. Someone else we know. I know. Yeah. Do you remember Archer? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We had a big old CompuSA card, didn't um, we? Yeah, that's true. We stuck it on all our flyers, didn't <laughs> <Yeah>. we? <laughs> Who's responsible for that? <laughs> but uh, it's like, you know, this guy's worked for Salesforce for 11 years. Now. He's probably been trying to get this thing done for 11 years. <laughs> yeah. Just working his way up. Yeah. I'm going to get back into that race. <laughs> yeah. I'll get my box back. <laughs> yeah. I just thought that was funny. I've never, never got into racing. Me neither. I just, it's not a thing for me. Yeah. I mean, there was a uh, Days of Thunder that made it, that uh, that almost got me into racing. It was was that that's just circle track racing? Like um, no, Days of Thunder is a movie with uh, Tom Cruise. But yeah, it was a stock car racing. Stock car racing, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you know, movies like they know how to make exciting. You know, the angles and, and the quick cuts, oh, yeah. and then the the wrecks, the sur- you know, and the surround sound huge. as the as the cars pass by. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it makes yeah. it seem like it's all happening so fast, and you actually watch one. I'm like, okay, there they go around again and again. Yeah, but no, there's some people that really enjoy it. So, well, John, what else do we want to cover? Since we're kind of at the hour mark here, um, I mean, the the other news is you know we could talk about other stuff. Um, can can we talk about this? Um, so you know, all these tech companies now are just realizing they need to they want to start making people come back into the office. Oh, now that now that we've defeated COVID. COVID Have we? Oh yeah, I mean, oh yeah. Claim You're victory. There's just, more variants out there. Just claim victory and move on, John. Okay, I'm fine with that. Um, <clears throat> well, this is funny. The so Google is, um, you know, they're saying okay, people have to start coming back into the work, and uh, they're they're using this. Sorry, I'm trying to read. It just doesn't work really well. Um, <laughs> But they're doing this boil the frog method. So Google is going to start with having people having to come in. Um, I don't know if it's two or three times a week, but then, but then like bump it up. But they brought in this. I guess the person's a former HR person at Google, but he's talking kind of publicly um, mm. about this. He said that after he said that oh, the transition is going to happen over the next three to five years, and it's the boil the frog method. And the purpose of the boil the frog method is to do it subtly and thereby avoid difficult questions and conflict. But, he said, but that's not only bad for trust and morale, it's also not the best thing for the employees or the company. 
This guy says the perfect mix of employee productivity and worker happiness is a three plus two schedule. So three days in the office, two are remote. He said the combination gives you the best chance to build relationships in the office and work on tasks that are easier at home. But I noticed that uh, Apple is doing the boil the frog method. I think they're all going to do the boil the frog method. Yeah, I think so. It's definitely a double edged sword to to be fully remote. I mean, I think we've all proven that we can do it remote, but I think you're missing a lot of things as well. Well, here, you missed that kind of, you know, hallway chat about something or questions or just idea thoughts. And you also miss the, you know, saying hi to the boss and working on promoting yourself for your, your own brand. So here's where they're going to get them. And this guy, this, I'm glad he, I'd had to scroll down to, to read this um, part. But he says that he thinks workers are going to actually want to come into the office themselves without being told to. When they see their bosses giving more promotions and opportunities to staff who are in the building over those who work from home. Yeah. So that's how they get you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not a, it's not a intentional discrimination thing. It's just, you know, you, there's a relationship built there and that person understands who you are and what you're doing. And to a certain extent, and you, so you're top of mind when it comes to people who can, can fit a, a position. It's just so weird. I mean, I get that, but just like with our company, cause we're just so remote that's always what, have been. Yeah. But that, that's kind of what bugs me about it. Even I did this when I was younger as well is you're, you're young and you, you almost feel entitled. you feel like I'm doing all this work? Why am I not moving up? Why isn't someone giving me this? And it, 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 I had to learn that I had to, I had to work on my own brand. I had to work on promoting myself. I had to work on advertising myself and those are things you have to do, whether it's in person or remote, we'll have to figure out how to do it remotely. But that's something that we all have to learn to do at some point. And I feel like a, there's a certain generational gap that, that doesn't, hasn't learned that lesson or just it continues to feel entitled. So they, they feel like they're doing all this work, but they're not getting promoted. And it's, 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 it's not always just about how, how much, how hard you work. It's still pretty much a networking thing. Who, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. It's just, you know. And be willing to, to leave a company. I mean, I can tell you m- my salary wouldn't be what it is now if I stayed with the same company oh, yeah. for the last 20 years. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's increased because I've, I've made those transitions and I've, I've, I've advertised myself and, and I've been needed enough to, to warrant an increase in, in salary. And it's mm. just, this is the way it progresses. Yeah. It's not the days of old where you stayed with a company for 50 years and earned a pension and then retired. It's just not, that's just not the world we live in anymore. Nope. <clears throat> So being able to move and, and find new experiences and, and new places and to grow as, as an individual, I mean, that's, it, it takes work. You can't just sit in one spot. It is interesting, though, like at remote companies like ours, you, people who work remotely, like you're not competing with people who come into the office because we don't come into the office. No one comes into the office. I mean, I, I, right. you see what I'm saying, a though? silo effect to it. I have no idea what, what people are doing from day to day, whereas I'd probably have more if we were I, in an office. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I feel like to some degree you probably have as much knowledge about what the other people are doing as, as you probably should. Like, yes, I should. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, if you, whatever to whatever degree you don't know what someone's doing, it's probably because like you don't need to. Yeah, you know, there, and, and, there's there's a certain happenstance to just walking up to someone and talking about your day at the water cooler and going, "Oh, that I have an idea for that," or "I'm kind of working on something like that." Why don't, why don't we? I mean, there's right. there's things that happen when you're collaborating with people socializing with people that doesn't happen when we're all just texting randomly because we have a thought in our head. Yeah, I know. And I didn't necessarily mean to go down this 
down this rabbit hole, but um, that's true. And there's that's why like companies that are remote, like you, you really have to try to create a culture where a lot of that stuff happens through things like Slack and Zoom or whatever, whatever you do, you know, because you do want to you do want to encourage that serendipitous type those you know activities mm-hmm. that result in you know new ideas and cross pollination of things and whatever yeah but again my my i guess my my point was like it's it i could see the downside for like people who want to work remotely at a companies that ha- have big offices and a lot of people go in yeah, you are gonna relative to people who go into the office more you're you're gonna lose out on that facetime and just that exposure but if you work for a company that's all remote it's a level playing field true anyway well let's wrap it up john you're not gonna talk about musk and twitter oh yeah i don't know i don't it's not really much uh, yeah i mean he's he bought he's almost almost 10 percent, and i don't know well, we have a he's a bit Brett, of a we have Brett Taylor there as well. That's true. He's the chairman, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah. it's um, interesting because we assumed that with Salesforce and Brett kind of being involved, that it would go a certain direction. But now Elon being involved kind of kind of makes you wonder what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, you know, so he owns ten percent of the company now. Um, that doesn't. I don't know, and I don't know what Twitter's rules are. You know, in terms of how they run their company, but yeah. that doesn't. I mean, obviously, that's not a voting majority. So you can easily be outvoted mm-hmm. um, if it comes to a shareholder vote. Right. He's on, he's on the board, so he gets a voting seat on the board. Mm-hmm. That's just one vote, too. Yeah. So, but it's just, it's fun because he's, you know, he's the, this quirky kind of heterodox type of guy who's. I don't understand him. I don't understand why people are so fascinated by him. I mean, it, it like, like treat him like he's like, like, uh, Iron Man or something. <laughs> With that, Tony Stark. Yeah, they, yeah. they treat him like a Tony Stark character. Like, yes. you know, this, this rich, super genius person. I'm like, I don't... I mean, I'm not arguing that he's not intelligent or anything, but I, I think he... I don't, I don't think he's Tony Stark. Well, t- first of all, Tony Stark is fake. Well, so, so maybe you're holding him to an impossible standard. Maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. He's It's a big topic that... Well, we can say for another day, maybe. You're saying those abs I've been imagining him having are just not there? Oh, whatever. I know you have images on your desktop of him shirtless. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, dear listener, uh, please come join our Slack if you haven't already. It's at good or com. Click on community. Uh, you can email us info at com with questions, comments, recipes, formulas, complaints. Uh, sticker requests. You didn't get a back chat. We had some a request. I did get. I did get those. By the okay. way, I think you asked me. I just no. I haven't. So I, I got to get a batch of stickers out. Um, I'll do that at some point. <laughs> and then other than that, just share us on the socials and hug your loved ones. Get outside. I'm trying to get outside more. Yeah, it's a good thing. It's a good time of year to be outside. At least here in this part of the world. That's all I got. Well, and to that, I say good day, sir. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. <laughs>